So today for our sermon, for our message, we're still in the same series, looking at songs of the Bible, and we're still in the Psalms. I did say eventually we'd make it to the New Testament uh, and look at a few early, likely Christian hymns that are present in the New Testament that we see in little passages. But for now, we're still in the Psalms, looking at those songs of the Bible. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm 84. And you can already flip there in your Bibles. That way you'll be ready when it comes time to read through the psalm. And we'll read through and sort of pick it apart and, and do all the teaching. But before we really dive into the main body of the psalm, I want to take a look at the heading and sort of set the context a little bit, talk about uh, really the context of this. Otherwise, we won't really be able to understand it as well if we don't really understand sort of the setting. And so we'll start by looking at the heading here for the psalm. And it says, To the choir master according to the Getith. I'm reading from the English Standard Version here, which I think does a good job of, of translating this psalm. I'll uh, nuance a few little parts of it, but for the most part, it does a good job translating this. So, to the choir master, according to the Getith. Uh, we don't really know what Getith is. You know, what is that specifically? It's clearly some sort of musical term, musical notation, we just really don't know. Scholars don't really know what exactly it is denoting here. So that's why it's just sort of translated as the Hebrew there, the getith, whatever that is. And then it goes on in the heading, a psalm of the sons of Korah. So the natural question to ask here is sort of, well, what is this of the sons of Korah? What does this mean? Well, the sons of Korah, these descendants of Korah, made up one of the three branches of Levitic, the Levitical choir. There were three Levitical choirs uh, appointed by David to minister there, uh, musically speaking, minister in the temple, right, before the Lord. Uh, and there were three of them. David appointed them really in the tabernacle in his day, to be most precise, but then ultimately in the temple once it was built under Solomon. Uh, and each of the different choirs, the three choirs, represented the really three branches of the line of Levi, the three sons of Levi. And so there was one Levitical choir for each of those family branches, each of the three sons of Levi. And Korah, the sons of Korah, the descendants of Korah, represent the family line of Kohath, who was one of the three sons of Levi. So this is one of the Levitical choirs we're talking about when we're talking about the sons of Korah, the descendants of Korah, that Kohathite line. This is uh, what we're speaking of here. So it's, it's of one of the Levitical choirs. Now, what does that mean? There's really two potential uh, interpretations of this. One is, and I would say this is correct and the more obvious, of the sons of Korah, meaning uh, speaking of authorship here, here right? Who uh, wrote this psalm? Who composed it? And it's of the sons of Korah, meaning it, it's from that Levitical choir, from that branch of, of the line of Levi here, that one of the three Levitical choirs, some son, some descendant of Korah, some Levitical choir member, a Korahite, uh, authored this psalm. I would say that's probably what's intended here, almost certainly, but it, we have to be fair, and it's possible that the way this could be translated is for, right, a psalm for the sons of Korah, and here it would mean that it's a psalm that has been composed by, who knows, we're not sure, and it's for that Levitical choir to go and perform as a part of temple worship. So it's for them to sing and, and play the instruments and perform it. That is possible, grammatically speaking, it could mean that. I would say that's not particularly likely, though. I would say really, in all reality, it's denoting authorship. And so the authorship of this psalm is from that one of the three uh, Levitical choirs, the Korahite. 
white choir. And that's what's being said. So some descendant of Korah, one of these members of this Levitical choir, is the one who penned this, who authored this. Uh, and probably it's someone of some degree of standing in the choir, not just sort of your average choir member, but probably someone of note within sort of that line of, of Korah uh, in the Levitical choir. So uh, a little bit more, again, before we dive into the body of the psalm, we want to talk a little bit more about the context because it will help us to, to understand this here. And we can sort of pick apart a little of this context just from various bits of this psalm, but I want to kind of give it to us up front. And what seems to be this, the case here is that uh, this member of the Levitical choir, this Korahite, uh, is in exile, is in captivity. Right, there's probably been some sort of attack or raid on, on the southern kingdom of Judah here. Uh, don't, if you think of exile, you're thinking, oh, in captivity and exile, your, might, your mind might automatically go to, oh, this is the Babylonian exile, that's what we're talking about. Uh, I'd say that's not the case. It's not, it's not that exile. It's not like the Babylonians have come in and they've conquered the southern kingdom. It's sort of laid waste. It's no more. Uh, the temple's destroyed. Uh, there's no king sitting on the throne. That's not what we're talking about. This is some sort of uh, lesser attack uh, on the southern kingdom of Judah, but nonetheless some sort of attack that resulted in some people, wherever this attack might have been, some people being taken away as captives and now they're in exile in you know, whatever place this is. We don't have all the specifics, but probably some sort of nation around Israel has attacked and carried away some people into captivity, including the psalmist here, right? This Korahite Levitical choir member who is now penning this psalm, right? Authoring this. And he's authoring this while he's in exile. And so he's in exile. He, he's uh, not in the promised land, not in Judah, not in Jerusalem. Uh, and this is a little bit more of the context, but this is taking place, right? Or at least the setting of the psalm, but I'd say it's probably also the time of year when he's actually writing the psalm, but certainly the setting within the, the text of the psalm itself is actually the, the time of year that it really is right now. It's the time of the celebration of Sukkot, which was one of the three pilgrimage festivals that the Jews celebrated, certainly commanded in Scripture. And so at this time for the celebration of Sukkot, what was expected of all of the faithful followers of the Lord, what they were to do is to, you know, wherever they lived in the Promised Land, to leave there and go to Jerusalem, to go on that pilgrimage to Jerusalem, uh, and then there in Jerusalem worship the Lord as a part of the holiday. And this happened to be Sukkot. Uh, and Sukkot is, you know, it varies a little bit as compared to our Julian, our Gregorian calendar, that is. Uh, but it's somewhere between sort of mid-September to mid-October. It happens to be around mid-October this year. But so it's sort of this time in the fall. Uh, and we know that because in the psalm, it's, it's quite clearly in the context of a pilgrimage festival. But you could say, well, which of the three is it? We're not sure. Uh, but we see here a reference to early rains, and there are really two seasons in Israel. There's the dry season and the rainy season. And the beginning of the rainy season would be around now, sort of the start of October. It would vary a little bit from year to year, but that would be when the early rains would come. And we see that this pilgrimage is taking place uh, at the time that the early rains, the first rains are arriving. So this is sort of fall time right around now or maybe in the coming weeks. So right at the time of Sukkot. And so this is the context. It's, it's at the time of, of Sukkot and the people of, uh, of Judah, of Israel here, they're going up to Jerusalem. They're going on their pilgrimage as they ought to, as they rightfully should, being faithful to the Lord's command to go and present themselves there at the temple and worship the Lord as they were called to. But of course, for the psalmist, well, he can't do that. 
He would want to do that. He desires to do that. There is this longing to be there at the temple, to go on his pilgrimage there, come before the Lord, be at the temple, worship him there. And indeed, not even just worship him as sort of a regular old faithful follower of the Lord, but he would have had a special place in that temple worship, right, as a member of this Levitical choir uh, and sort of leading in worship, in musical worship of the Lord. But he can't be there, right? He's in exile. He's in captivity in some other uh, nation where he's been led there. He's being held captive. He cannot make it there. And so sort of that's the backdrop. That's the setting of this whole psalm. And he is longing to go, longing to be a part of this pilgrimage festival, longing to be in the temple and worship the Lord. And I think we sort of, it's important for us to really understand that context uh, as we now come to the text of the psalm. So that's the setting, and now let's start reading the psalm itself, the main body. And it says, starting at the first verse here, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And certainly he'd be speaking in, in part of an aesthetic beauty right there. If you were to look at the temple, it would have been wonderful and beautiful, pleasing to the eye. But even more significant than that, there's a spiritual beauty to it. This is the place where God has made the fullness of his presence to dwell in the midst of his people there, right in the Holy of Holies. And so even spiritually speaking, it's a beautiful place where God dwells, where his people gather and lift up praises and worship to him. And he goes on, verse 2, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Right? There's this deep and profound longing that sort of cuts to the core of his very soul, his heart. Deeply within him, he's longing, fainting, yearning for the courts of the Lord. He wants to be there. And again, remember the context. This is one of those three super important pilgrimage festivals uh, that God has appointed where the people are to go up and worship the Lord. Right? And yet, he can't be there. He can't do it. He's being prevented. And yet, in his soul, he's just, in his heart, he's longing, yearning to be there, yearning to come before the Lord, the place where his presence is dwelt, gather with his brothers and sisters, right? With the family of faith there, the faithful of Israel, of Judah, gather with them and just worship the Lord. And he's yearning to do so. And he says again, my heart and flesh sing for joy. I want to change that translation a little bit, but that's how the ESV translates it. And it's a, it's a legitimate translation of the word that's used there. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. So that's a possible translation, but a better one, and uh, uh, most translations, I think, render it the way I'm going to render it here. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. It can sort of mean uh, cry out for or sing for joy. There's a little bit of a range of meaning, meaning for what that word, how you can translate that word into English. But I would say it's contextually, uh, talking about the context here and what's being said, cry out for the living God is a much better translation. So it's this my heart and flesh, right? The core of my being is just crying out for the living God. I just want to go and be with him where he dwells, where his presence is in the temple. I just want to come before him, be there with him, and worship him in his courts. And then he goes on, verse 3, even the sparrow finds a home. And the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Right? There's this sense of, in, in which it's like, 
even the birds, right? You can imagine him sort of picturing, you know, sort of the, the temple scene and what would be going on there. He had spent plenty of time there uh, as a faithful follower of the Lord, but also as, as a member of the Levitical choir. He would have been there plenty over the course of his life. And you can imagine him just sort of picturing it in his head, even though he's far off in some other country, right, and not able to be present there. And he can picture sort of the birds, right? They're, they're building their nests and, and laying their eggs, feeding their young, doing their thing, chirping away. And he's thinking, even the birds, right, they get to be there, but at the same time, he's sort of you know, thinking to himself, yet I can't come before the Lord, right? They get to be there at the temple where the Lord dwells, where his people worship him, even these sparrows, even these swallows, and yet I cannot. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, right? The faithful of the Lord, who dwell in his house, who delight in going there, singing his praises, truly blessed are they. And then at the end of that is this, again, musical notation here uh, that we just don't really know exactly what it means. Sela is, is what it is at the end of this verse. And, uh, you know, there's various speculations about what possibly could mean, but the reality is we just don't know. Some sort of musical term and we're just not sure. And then going on, verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. And in this verse, in the coming verses, we start to get into the, the very clear and obvious language of pilgrimage, right? And we're going to see that this is the pilgrimage taking place uh, at the time of Sukkot. The people, uh, the faithful, are going up to Jerusalem as they were called to, to go and worship the Lord there. But what's being said here, I'd say there are a little bit, two things that are being said here, a little bit of... Uh, two different things that are said in this passage. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. I'd say, first of all, we have to understand this sort of from an ancient Near Eastern perspective and mindset. And for anybody or any nation, their deity would have been viewed as their strength, right? If you have one nation going out to do battle and war against another nation, the whole idea is that it isn't just sort of one person fighting against another person or one army against another army, but it's really, you know, the god or gods of one country fighting against the gods of the other. And of course, well, whoever's more powerful, whichever deity is more powerful, they're the ones that are going to triumph. So for any person, for any country, for any grouping, they would have viewed their strength as not their own physical might or the strength of their army, but, but of course their real strength was their god. Of course, for the pagan nations around them, they were sort of right that God is their strength, but they, of course, worshipped other gods and, and believed in false gods. But for Israel, it was true. For those who are the faithful of the Lord, their strength is not their own might, their own abilities, but, of course, God is truly their strength. And so, in a sense, to say, blessed is, are those whose strength is in you, in a sense, it's almost to say, blessed are those whose God is indeed you, Lord, right? For God to be your strength is to say that also he is your deity, he is your God. So, in a sense, blessed are the faithful whose strength is in you. Blessed are the faithful whose God is you, Lord. I'd say that's one thing that's being said here, but I'd say that there's a little bit more going on here, and as we're going to get into the very obvious language of, of pilgrimage here, and we're going to see here a little bit too that as a part of this pilgrimage, you know, you can imagine you live, you know, who knows where in Judah, and you got to make it to Jerusalem, and the road isn't always going to be easy peasy, you know, nice flat level ground and wide roads and an easy journey, but there are going to be tough places to go through, places that are dry, sort of parched desert land. There might be rivers that are obstacles to you, right? There'll be hills and mountains. It's not going to be oh so easy at all times. And this is what we're even going to see in the coming verse. And I'd say that this is also 
tell a little bit what's in view here as he begins to talk about pilgrimage and use that language here, that what is in view here is even as these faithful are headed to, to Zion, to Jerusalem, to worship the Lord, yes, there are going to be obstacles along the way, but the Lord will be a source of strength for them so that they will persevere and make it there and present themselves before the Lord and be able to worship Him there. So I'd say it's sort of saying those two things. The Lord is their strength as they go on this pilgrimage, but also for the Lord to be their strength is sort of another ancient Near Eastern way of saying the Lord is their God, put simply, and that they are blessed because of that. So blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. So blessed are those in whose heart are the highways to Zion. It's, now this, we have to realize that, that he's speaking of the heart here. It's not like blessed are those who are really great with directions. They just have a good sense of direction. You know, they're sort of like a walking GPS and you know they're going to be able to make their way to Jerusalem because they're just really great. They know, you know, where north is all the time and, and so forth. This is really more speaking of, of a matter of the heart and in a sense what's being said here, to sort of paraphrase it and put it in different terms, is in terms, different terms is blessed are those who delight in faithfully going on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem as they're called to to worship the Lord basically blessed are the faithful and the faithful are the ones who delight in going up to Jerusalem as they're called to as a part of this pilgrimage to worship the Lord that's really what he's saying there and then he goes on, continuing talking about pilgrimage here. He's already sort of addressed that in this, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. That's a reference to pilgrimage there. But we see it here as well in verse 6. As they go through the valley of Baca, literally that means valley of weeping. And it's a good name for the region because it's quite clear from the context here that this is some sort of dry place. At least in the dry season, it's a very dry place. Um, and we're going to see that as sort of the rainy season comes, you start to see pools and, and you know, you can imagine sort of life springing forth a little bit. But at least at, at this point, at the end of the dry season, it, it's a very dry place. We don't know exactly where this valley of Baca is, we're just not certain. Uh, but we can sort of get a sense for what the place is like. And it says, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. Now this is where I sort of referenced this at the beginning of the sermon, but this is where we see this reference to early rains. Uh, up until this point, you might say, well, this could be any of the three pilgrimage feasts. We don't really know which one, but then this makes it abundantly clear that we're talking about Sukkot here, or Feast of Tabernacles is another name, or Feast of Tents, or Booths, uh, Feast of Ingathering. It goes by different names. But that makes it quite clear that that's the one we're talking about. That's the only one that it could be since it's at the time of the early rains. Uh, but what's being said here, right, as they go through this valley, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools, right? There's sort of this dry place at the end of the dry season, right? It's dry, it's barren, it's sort of desert-like, a weary land. And yet just by virtue of God's people passing through this, right? This is a place where they would pass through. You can imagine that the psalmist here, not that everyone would pass through the exact same place because you'd have people coming from the north and the south and the east and west and all different places headed to Jerusalem. But you can imagine this is probably one of the places that the person authoring this would have gone through year after year or three times a year, once for each of those festivals, would have gone through, would have very much been in his head. He could sort of picture it. It's sort of at that time of year, even as he's writing this, you can imagine it's, it's the time of year 
year than it is now, September, mid-September to, to mid-October. He knows that the people of Judah are headed up to Jerusalem for this, and he knows sort of at this time, this would be when he would be going through this place, this valley of Bacchae, this dry place. Yet as God's people are marching through this dry, weary land, in a spiritual sense, they sort of turn it into this wonderful, blessed place, right? And, and sort of the... the imagery of this, sort of, a, 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 sort of something that points to this spiritual reality, that just by virtue of God's people being in this place, you can sort of picture them going through this dry land, sort of physically speaking, it looks terrible, everything's dry, not looking so great, but God's people are going through, they're rejoicing, you can imagine them maybe singing songs of praise and worship, excited as they're marching closer and closer to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, and so sort of spiritually this place almost becomes a place of great blessing and wondrous, and sort of the, the physical imagery that sort of denotes this, this dry place turning into a wonderful place, spiritually speaking, yet at the same time, this place that's dry is actually in a very physical way turning into, in a sense, a nice place now that is watered. As the early rains come, this place that's sort of parched, dry, and, and the dry season goes on for quite a bit with literally no rain, and then all of a sudden now you have these early rains and what's happening in this dry valley of Baca, well, the early rain also covers it with pools. And so that's just sort of reflective what's physically going on, a dry place becoming sort of this well-watered, wonderful place. It's just the physical thing that is going on there is pointing to this greater spiritual reality that God's people passing through this dry place are sort of in a spiritual sense turning it into this wonderful, blessed place as they're marching up on their pilgrimage to the Lord, to Jerusalem, to go and be before the Lord and worship Him. And he goes on, verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Now, what is this? They go from strength to strength, right? They sort of, in a sense, it's they go forth with ever-increasing strength. That's sort of what, what's being said in that. And here's the idea. He's just talked about one of these dry places that as you're sort of going through would seem like an obstacle. You know, you can imagine them facing hills, valleys, you know, the mountains and all that. Uh, you can imagine them facing rivers, which might seem nice and, oh, water, isn't that a blessing? But, well, how am I going to cross it, right? All of these obstacles on the journey, and these are things that you would expect would sort of exhaust God's people, and at the end of it, they'd be left weary, and are they really going to make it all the way to Zion, to Jerusalem, to worship the Lord there and celebrate Sukkot here, right? But instead of growing weary, they actually wind up picking up strength in a sense. As they know that they're growing closer, I'd say, first of all, going back to verse 5, right, blessed are those whose strength is in you, right, the Lord is a source of strength to them that even though there are these obstacles and they ought to be growing more and more weary, God is strengthening them. But I'd also say, even just in the sense of uh, they know what lies ahead of them, what's at the end of this road and journey, and they know that with every step they're getting closer to the temple, closer to worshiping the Lord there where his very presence dwells in the Holy of Holies, and there's just this excitement, and it's sort of strengthening them in, in great joy and expectation of what is to come. They're sort of growing stronger as they, grow, as they go rather than becoming all the more exhausted and weary as they go. Sort of the opposite of what you would expect is actually what's taking place as God strengthens them and as they're strengthened as they draw nearer and nearer, of course, to what they're excited about, the joy of being before the Lord in Zion. And then going on verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. 
And here we have another cella. We're not sure exactly what that means. Again, that musical notation there. So, O Lord, give, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. A quick reading of this might make us think that here God's being referred to as the shield, which certainly in places he is, but that's not actually what's being said here. Behold our shield, and this actually winds up being their king. It's their anointed. Behold, that is, Lord, look upon our shield, that which is a defense to us, the king you have anointed, our king, Lord, whom you have given us. Look upon our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. And as we read this, it might seem a little bit bizarre. You're sort of thinking, like, well, where does, where's the king fit in all of this? It doesn't seem like it fits here in the midst of this psalm where, you know, he's sort of, his soul is longing, yes, fainting for the courts of the Lord. And then he starts talking about sort of the pilgrimage and the journey. And then all of a sudden, there's this prayer in here, and it's for God to look upon uh, the king, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, look upon him in a sense, favorably, that would be implied in that. Look upon him favorably and, and bless him and show kindness and grace to him. Uh, and so where's that coming from? Why is that suddenly inserted here? And I'd say, again, we sort of have to understand a little bit of what the subtext is here and understand the context and come back to the fact that, well, the psalmist here is in exile, right? There's been some sort of military campaign or incursion into, into Judah, and he's been carried away, right? An incursion by some foreign power, he's been carried away. And certainly, right, he's seeking for the Lord to deliver him from that. He wants to be set free from this captivity. He wants to be able to go to the temple, to be in the courts of the Lord, so he can go and worship him there in this wondrous place, God's dwelling place. That's what he desires. And of course, God can certainly bring about that deliverance in, in a whole host of miraculous ways. But what would be sort of the most obvious, most expected way in which he would expect that if, the, if God's going to deliver him here, this is the way God would carry it out? Well, the most expected way would be that God's going to strengthen the king of Judah, right? And that's why he says here, right, look upon our anointed, look upon our shield, right? Look on the face of your anointed. Basically, what he would expect is if God's going to deliver him, it's going to be by raising up the king of Judah, strengthening him, strengthening the army of Judah, which will sort of counterattack, attack this nation, nation, whichever it is, and triumph over this other nation. And the result will be those captives being set free, including himself. So that's sort of what he's looking for here and crying out to the Lord for, right? Behold our shield, our king, right? Oh God. Right? The earthly king, not talking about God as king, though of course he is, but look on the face of your anointed. Right, This king of Judah, look upon him, look upon him favorably, bless him, strengthen him for the day of battle against this enemy so that God's people might triumph over this enemy and that this psalmist here who's writing this might be set free from his captivity and go back to the promised land, go and be able to present himself at the temple and worship the Lord there. That is his prayer here. That's the cry of his heart. And then he goes on here, verse 10, certainly a, a well-loved verse. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And this reference to dwelling in the tents of wickedness just sort of added evidence that he's in exile here, in captivity, in the tents of wickedness, right? In some sort of foreign, wicked, pagan nation. Uh, but what is he saying here? He's basically saying that... that a day in the temple, a day in the presence of the Lord, a day in his courts is better than a thousand, a million, you know, you pick your large number, better than an immeasurable, limitless number of days anywhere else, right? There's nothing he wants more than just to be with the Lord, be in his presence, and worship him. 
And he goes on, right? I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness, right? I'd sort of rather be the, the low guy at the temple, just sort of a guy, you know, a doorkeeper guarding the door. I'd rather be one of those guys. I would trade my lofty position as uh, sort of a high up in this Levitical choir. I'd trade that in a heartbeat, right? Having that lofty position, but being separated from you in the tents of wickedness, I would trade that situation in a heartbeat to be the low guy who still gets to be in the temple. That's how much I desire just to be with you, be in your presence, and worship you, Lord. And he goes on, verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield, right? Sun in the sense of powerful, glorious, radiant, life-giving. This is just sort of who God is. And a shield, a source of defense, right, for his people. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Right? To put it simply there, God is good and loving and kind and gracious to his faithful people. It's certainly this is a statement of general truth, but the psalmist here has something a little more specific in mind. In a sense, he's saying, this is how you operate, Lord, toward your, your faithful people. And by the way, Lord, I'm one of your faithful people. So please, Lord, act in kindness and goodness and love and mercy and grace toward me in my lowest state here in captivity in this foreign nation. Lord, I know that you act in goodness and kindness toward your people. So do that for me, Lord, is sort of the implicit prayer within this. Do that for me. Deliver, show your kindness and goodness toward me and bless me by delivering me from this, freeing me from this captivity so that I can go and worship you in your temple. And he goes on, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Yes, again, sort of statement of, of, of truth, of course, in, in a general sense, of course, God blesses, right? Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Blessed is the one whose Lord is, whose God is the Lord and who leans upon him and trusts in him. But again, a little more is implied in this and it's sort of, and God, I'm one of those people. I'm one of those who trusts in you, who looks to you as, as my Lord, my God, and looks to you in my hour of need and trusts in you. So Lord, bless me. And again, not the Lord is obligated to bless exactly the way we want to. He certainly does bless those who are faithful to him. He does bless those who trust in him. But he does so, of course, on his terms, in his ways. And the psalmist would have known that. But nonetheless, there's this cry of the psalmist, Lord, as you show goodness and blessing toward your faithful people, and I'm one of your faithful people, Lord, may you show your goodness toward me and kindness and bless me in this way, Lord, if you desire. Deliver me from this captivity that I might return to the promised land, go to your temple, and worship you there and delight in that. That is certainly his prayer. And I would say that I think quite clearly that that actually happened and took place, that, that the Lord did ultimately deliver him uh, from that captivity and return him to the promised land, to the temple, to worship, right? Because otherwise, in all likelihood, we wouldn't have this psalm as a part of the Psalter. We probably would not have this as one of our 150 psalms if he hadn't been delivered from that captivity. Now, you could certainly conceive of some way in which he was in captivity and died there, but he passed this psalm along to someone else who passed it to his son who was managed who managed to get free and return to to Judah and then this entered the Psalter you could conceive of some way in which that could happen so certainly that's possible that but I'd say in all reality in all likelihood I think it's safe to assume that the reason we even have this psalm is because he was set free from that captivity he returned back to his people brought this psalm with him which God had inspired him to write 
And of course, now we have this wonderful psalm. And so God, I would say, did show his great goodness and faithfulness, just as the psalmist here desired, and he did deliver him from that captivity. But I want to kind of come back before we, you know, move on to application and, and sort of say, well, you know, what is the central theme that really runs through all of this? I know we sort of dug into each and every verse and, and sort of what's being said in every little verse and every line here. But sort of the, the central theme that just runs throughout is this yearning and longing on the part of God's faithful servant here, the psalmist here, this uh, member of the Levitical choir, right, this Korahite. Uh, choir member, his deep and profound longing just to be with the Lord, and not just to be with him, but of course, to enter into his presence and to just pour forth worship and praise to the Lord, to the living God. His yearning just, of course, as he says, for the courts of the Lord, right? My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God, or as he says later, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. We just see this deep and profound longing for the Lord, desire to be with him, just to fellowship with him and to worship him. And that is something that we also, as God's people, ought to possess. We ought to have that yearning just to be with God, to draw near to him, to be in his presence, and to worship him. And certainly we don't have to go up to the temple. The temple isn't there. It's destroyed, right? The first one was destroyed. The second one as well. So we don't have to go up to the temple to be there. And the psalmist would have known as well that, that yes, he could worship the Lord and praise him even from far off in some foreign land. But still there was something wondrous and special about going to the place where the fullness of God's presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the midst of his people. Going there with fellow brothers and sisters, faithful followers of the Lord and collectively worshiping the Lord and praising him. And so... You know, we should have this yearning, this longing, this strong heart's desire just to worship the Lord. To do that really day after day. It should just be part of the fabric of our lives that, that daily we are taking opportunities just to praise our Lord, just to worship Him. Whether we're at home, we're making dinner, we're uh, on the road headed to work, whatever it might be, on lunch break, wherever we are, there should just be this yearning, this desire, this passion for the Lord, desire to draw near to Him and worship Him. And then to actually follow through on that and worship him, not just to yearn to do so, but of course then to actually fall through and really do it and worship the Lord. But I would say that there also is a sense in which we ought to, ought to yearn and long to worship the Lord in sort of a special way, just as the psalmist here yearned, not just to worship the Lord day after day, wherever he was, but for, to yearn and long to worship the Lord in a special way with brothers and sisters, other faithful followers of the Lord in the Lord's house coming into his presence in the house of the Lord and just worshiping him. And for us, in a sense, that's, that's this morning. That's Sunday morning. That's sort of the, the New Covenant, New Testament era parallel, right? And we ought to yearn as God's people for every Sunday morning, all week long, we should be saying, I just can't wait for Sunday morning to arrive. I can't wait for Sunday morning to get here because all I want to do is just gather with my brothers and sisters in Christ and I just want to come into the Lord's house with them and into the presence of the Lord and just worship Him and just praise Him. Just as the psalmist here longed to enter into the Lord's house with his brothers and sisters and worship the Lord, we ought to have that same mindset of desiring to worship the Lord in that special way as a congregation, as a family of faith, entering into the Lord's house, into his presence, and just worshiping him and praising him. And in all reality, I actually don't think this is a problem here at New Hope Chapel. I think we really do have a strong desire and passion for the Lord and for worshiping him and for 
worshiping him collectively as a church, as a congregation on Sunday mornings. But if we just sort of look at the church as a whole, sort of church, capital C, looking at least at the American church, I think really this is an issue. I think the reality is, if we're honest, if we look at most churches out there, there are large numbers, huge percentages of people who, in a sense, are still regular attenders with some degree of regularity in churches. They would identify as Christian. The Lord knows whether their hearts are really in it or not, but they certainly at least would identify as Christian. And yet the reality is, if you look at their attendance, maybe they show up once a month on Sunday mornings. Maybe they do once out of every three weeks, maybe even every other week. But Really, the reality is in most churches out there, the number of people or the percentage of people who are in church, 75 to 100% in that range, is actually fairly small. There's an awful lot of sort of scattered attenders, right? They come every now and then, and they're not really committed to that. What you see is sort of their heart attitude toward gathering as God's people and worshiping Him. That in general, in the American church, there isn't the type of yearning that this psalmist had, right? Just sort of this passionate, deep, profound longing just to gather with the family of faith and worship the Lord in His house where it's like, there's no place I'd rather be. I just want to be in the Lord's house with my people, worshiping Him, praising Him, and I'd rather be there than anywhere else, right? I'd rather one day there than a thousand anywhere else. I'd rather be a nobody in the house of God than a somebody somewhere else, right? There's just this deep yearning and passion for gathering with fellow believers in the presence of the Lord and worshiping Him. And I think what you see in all too many churches is quite the opposite, where it's sort of Sunday morning comes and, you know, your alarm goes off maybe and, oh, you know, I'm tired and I'm achy and it's been a long week and, you know, I got stuff to do around the house. I have chores. I have things to do. And all too often, people wind up not showing up for that worship. They don't show up in the presence of the Lord to worship Him as the family of faith because there are other things that seem to be a bigger priority. Again, I don't think this is New Hope Chapel. I think we're actually quite the opposite. But nonetheless, I think it's a problem in the American church, and we need to learn from the psalmist here. We, we ought to have this deep and profound yearning and longing for the Lord, a desire to come into His presence and a desire to worship Him day in and day out, but in a special way, too, on Sunday mornings as the people of God in His house, in His presence, just delighting and yearning to do so and worship the Lord and following through and really doing it. And again, I'm not harping on this because, again, I think this is a special issue for us as a church. I think we're quite faithful in this, uh, and I'm excited about that fact. I'm thrilled by that fact that this is a church that really does love the Lord, that really does desire and long to be in His presence and worship Him day after day, but on Sundays as well as the body of believers. Uh, and that's a priority of ours, and we ought to celebrate that fact, not sort of pride ourselves, look how wonderful we are, and, and pat ourselves on the back, but just sort of to rejoice in that fact that God has done that work in our hearts and, and given us that love for Him and that love for worshiping Him and praising Him. But even if I think we're good in this regard, and I think that we are, it doesn't mean that we can't stand to grow in it as well. I think, uh, you know, certainly in every area of our lives, even areas where we think we're strong, there's room for growth. We're not perfect. We know that. We still fall short of perfection in, in every way, to be sure. And we will not be made perfect until we go to be with the Lord. And so even in areas where we might think we're strong, we can still challenge ourselves to grow all the more. And so what I want for our application is this. Really, as a starting point, if we want to have that yearning for the Lord to be with Him and to be in His house and to worship Him, uh, it's really going to start with the Holy Spirit doing a work within us. And so really, application point one, sort of the starting point for it all, is to say, let's challenge ourselves to take time and come before the Lord, come before the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, change me. 
do that work within my heart that I need that I might grow in a passion and longing and yearning for you and for worshiping you in day after day that type of a worship that's just sort of part of the fabric of our daily lives but also Holy Spirit do that work within my heart to give me this longing and yearning a greater longing and yearning for worshiping you on Sunday mornings entering into your presence with your people collectively as the body of Christ worshiping you give me a greater yearning and passion for that right so that's step one we want to have that yearning and passion and longing for the Lord and for worshiping him but it starts with the Holy Spirit and him doing that work within our hearts and then really the last part of the application is follow through on it don't just have the passion don't just have the yearning don't just have the longing but then do it then actually worship the Lord let that be sort of part of what you just do day in and day out when you have your quiet time with the Lord uh, worship him don't just read the Bible or spend some time in prayer, but let worship be a part of that. And certainly being in his word is, is a type of worship and, and praise, and certainly that is true. But we ought to really prioritize worship. And as we're spending time with him, or even just as we're going about our daily lives, just remember that we are to be worshiping him at all times, have that longing for it, and just do it. Take the opportunity throughout the day to be worshiping him. But again, also not just having that be something that's part of your daily rhythm and routine, but something that's also in a special way, a priority on Sunday mornings as the body of Christ to gather together and corporately be worshiping and praising him. So let's hear the challenge. Let's learn from the psalmist and let's long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful for this psalm and the message contained within it. Lord, may we learn from it, may we see the great longing and yearning and heart's desire of the psalmist here for you, just to be with you, to worship you. May we see that example and follow in it, Lord. We ought to have that same yearning, that same heart's desire. And Holy Spirit, cultivate that within us. We need that change in our heart of hearts and bring it about that we might have that longing, that yearning for you to worship you day after day, but in a special way on Sunday mornings as well as your people. And may we not only have the, the yearning and longing and heart's desire, but may we follow through on it and truly worship you day after day after day, moment after moment, and again in that special way as your people collectively on Sunday mornings, all for you, for the lifting up of your name, for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.